welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I am your host, Trevor Connor, with my full allergy deep voice going on today. I am here with two co-hosts, so you all know Rob Pickles, but joining us again, we have Grant Holicky, who can't stop playing with his phone. I, I, it's just nice to be here, but you know, unfortunately, you guys aren't the most entertaining people in the world all the time, so I have to entertain myself with the phone. Yeah, I'm okay. sure our listeners are looking at their phones too while we're talking, so. Well, Pickles spends so much time talking to his phone breakfast. I don't need to hear about your breakfast. Hey man, listen, when we got to do a sound check in the morning, I like to talk about what I had for breakfast. And we're back to the latte. Back to the latte. <laughs> Thanks, and I'm happy to be here, Trevor. We appreciate it. I want to I go to the Holicky household so when I can see you yelling at your kids for playing on their phone at dinner, I can be like, <laughs> yeah, and real quick, can I point out that this morning for breakfast, Grant had toast with almond bread? Yeah, I had toast with toast. Yeah, it, it was a toast sandwich. I think I'm picturing this as a piece of toast, a piece of raw bread, and another piece of toast. Yeah, I'm anti-paleo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is truly about as unpaleo as you can possibly get. I, I, I tend to do that. I, I sit there in the morning, I try to think of what would be paleo, and then I go the opposite the total direction. Opposite. Yeah, if you I could get like it. some gluten spread. <laughs> <laughs> to just put on top of the toast. What, what, it's, like, what, it's like that that Seinfeld episode where he orders Chinese food and goes, eh, extra MSG. That's me. <laughs> Can you put some gluten on that? What would the closest thing to gluten spread be? I don't even know how you'd make that. I actually want to know, like, if you could separate gluten and turn it into a paste, what wheat, that would taste like. Right. Wheat paste. Next episode. All right. Wheat paste episode. Yeah. I'm in. Hey coaches, we have a new guide for you at fasttalklabs.com called How to Grow Your Coaching Business. In this free downloadable playbook, Coach Philip Hatsis explores how coaches like you can grow profits, create opportunities, and reach your growth goals, no matter how big or small. Visit fasttalklabs.com now to get this free download. All right, Trevor, what are we doing today? Okay, as you can tell, we are doing something a little bit different today. Um, we're off to a ripping start. start. I'm just not going to qualify it at all. But there's a lot of different topics that we have brought up as potential episodes that just couldn't hold their own as an episode. Either there wasn't enough to talk about or there wasn't a ton of science that we could provide to really give a thorough covering of the topic. But some of these we thought were really interesting we would like to discuss. So we're trying a new type of episode here where we're taking a few of these things that we said, uh-uh, can't do a full episode on it. But we're going to discuss them. We're going to you know, take 10 minutes for each, talk a little bit about if there's any science that we're aware of, but mostly talk as three coaches or physiologists and what our experience is with these different topics and hopefully still be able to give some good information but think of these as little episode ets, little short versions of some interesting topics that we're just going to cover quickly. Yeah, and I think part of the goal here is to create that discussion, right? Create an opportunity for people to kind of share how they have gotten through this, how they feel about it. It's going to be a lot of anecdotal in this. Maybe not quite as much research as we would normally do, but I think it'll be fun. Yeah, and I think the saving grace is that these are anecdotal, they're discussions, but they're discussions among three people who I like to think. We kind of know what we're talking about. We're, we're founded in science and, and everything else. So, you know, hopefully we don't uh, spew too much BS. And, uh, and if we do, our apologies. Uh, this is a uh, discussion, kind of a lot of personal experience in this one. So Grant has called this our potluck discussions. Yeah, Everybody's bringing a little something to the table and hopefully we get a meal out of it in the end. Grant, you're from like the land of casseroles, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm from the land of, well, there's a reason I had the breakfast I had. I am from the land of glutinous, non-paleo, pasta, casserole, everything in a dish, <laughs> throw it together. Yeah, it's perfect. It's nice. Great. I love it. Well, if we don't mind, I'm going to use that as a segue to kind of kick off our first topic you know, this came to me as I was out riding last week, as almost all of my good ideas come to me while I'm riding. <laughs> Let, let's be honest here. I need to ride my bike more. I'd probably be smarter if I did. This was a normal after work ride. You know, I had it an hour or two before the sunset. Beautiful day. So I grabbed a water bottle. I set out on my gravel bike. And, uh, you know, I try to do that because 
not take any calories with me. That's why I use your food segue. I didn't take any calories with me because I'm a very carbohydrate dependent person. You know, back in the day, my wife found me one day sitting on the floor of the kitchen, staring into an open refrigerator because I was so bonked, I couldn't even choose what to eat. That just describes <laughs> how carbohydrate dependent I am. So anyway, we've flashed back to last Wednesday or Thursday and I'm out riding and my water bottle, it wasn't enough. I was getting hungry after an hour and 15, hour and a half of riding. And uh, I, I was going to be able to make it back home, but I was definitely not really having any fun anymore. So I'm out riding kind of the dirt roads north of town. You guys are, are very familiar with Nimbus Road. And on the side of Nimbus Road, there was this little stand. I don't know if you've seen it, but you should look. <laughs> Grant knows exactly what I'm talking about. It. Grant knows. I skidded to a stop. It was almost like a, like a sliding into a parallel park on my gravel bike. Skidded into a stop at this little stand that was full of honey. And fortunately, they took PayPal. Oh. So I bought an entire jar, <laughs> like mason jar, full of honey. How did you keep that on your bike? Well... Because I'm a gravel rider, I have a handlebar bag. Okay. Of course you do. Of course I do. And so what did I do? I then rode out to Neva Road. And here's the thing. I was going to take the trails back home, but I now have a glass jar of honey in my handlebar bag. So I couldn't take the trails because it was, it was knocking against my head too. So I'm now heading away from home at 25 miles an hour on Neva, sitting up my finger in a honey <laughs> jar, eating honey off my finger. It was the most glorious thing. And it was one of the best moments I've ever had on a bike. It was golden hour. The sun was setting. Nobody was out there. The grass was green for the first time yep. in a long time yep. because yep. It, it recently rained. Eating honey straight out a jar. I even pulled up to the stoplight at the diagonal. Cars next to me. I'm digging into my jar of honey. with People, everything was sticky. I had honey. I was going to say that handlebar bag is no, ruined. No, I, I took a picture. Sounds I'll show you guys the picture. Awful. I have honey like on my face. I didn't even know it. I All I can picture is Rob riding with a, a red t-shirt, a little too short, his Pooh Bear moment, <laughs> <laughs> eating honey. I, <laughs> I don't think I was in a t-shirt. I'll go back and look at pictures, but I want to use this. this. This, in my opinion, this is a great topic. What do you guys eat while riding? Are you carbohydrate dependent like me? How do you get through things? Because I know for me, I'm super dependent on food and try as I may to extend my time that I can go without eating on the bike because it's a huge limiter because I love to do really long mountain bike adventures and I have to take a gazillion calories with me. What's your experience kind of with this food? What are your favorite things to eat while you're out there? What do you got? I'm going to let Trevor go on this one because I, I have this sneaking suspicion he might be different than Rob. I'm still not past the moment of do we now need to call Rob Winnie the Pooh for the, <laughs> for the rest of his life. I'll take that. <laughs> Rob Pooh Bear Pickles. A little, little Pooh Bear. I like it. Pooh Bear Pickles. I, I think I know the photo that we're going to use <laughs> for this episode. Oh, I was in a green Henley. Wow. You are covered in honey. And I'm covered in honey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I do have to interject. This is not about ride food, but I hate nothing more than being sticky. Yeah, it is sticky, one of my really. least favorite things in the world. And, I, and I, I will make major choices in life to avoid stickiness. I've been mid-race, mid-cross-race, having taken a gel, and we can get to that. But even, oh, no, it was because I had a gel at the start. And I had gel on my fingers, and it was sticky. And we're in the first lap of cross-race, and I got a water bottle, and I'm spraying down my hand because I hate feeling sticky. Wow. I hate being sandy, but not to that level. Oh, as many have noted, I am not type A, but that is, as Trevor nods <laughs> vigorously. That is your type A moment. <laughs> that is my thing. I, I cannot stand being sticky, sticky. So this is hell. I'm just going to bring in a little thing of Elmer's glue and, and <laughs> wave it at you. Honey might do the trick. Trevor, Trevor, so, tell so me about all this, food. All this reminds me of, uh, I just got to quickly share my story of the most epic ride I ever did in my life. This was when I was living on Vancouver Island. And there's this route that anybody who's lived on Vancouver Island knows exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about the Port Renfrew ride, which is this about 110, 120 mile epic, just up and down killer climbs route and you go to this little logging town of Port Renfrew and basically the road ends there. Like you, you take this road out and it just ends. 
That's awesome. And then you have to come back on all these hills. And this route, under normal conditions, will crack you. But I went out by myself, did not go fully prepared, was thinking I could stop at a store. And there are very few stores on this route because you have no idea just how out in the middle of nowhere you are. So did not bring enough food, did not bring enough water. And as I'm passing the few stores, I discovered I'm riding on the day when all the stores are closed. So there was nowhere to stop to get food, nowhere to stop to get water. I get to Port Renfrew, realizing I got a little over three hours to get home. I'm out of food. The one store in Port Renfrew is closed. And then I look at, when does the sun set? And it is in two hours. <laughs> and you're on a logging road with big logging trucks that will kill you. And if anybody's ever been, no, legit, this is a problem. Logging trucks haul butt on logging roads. There's oh, yeah. like no rules out there for like a gazillion There are actually vehicle. laws that logging trucks have the right of way because they are so heavy and so big, they can't really stop and get out of the way. So they can literally take you out and keep going. So I had my, oh my God moment. <laughs> I'm already bonking. And I now have to time trial this killer route back. No food, no water, somehow made it. I left my bike outside of my apartment. I barely walk into my apartment, go into the kitchen, lie down on the floor, and I'm literally reaching up <laughs> to see what I can grab on my counter, make it fall on the floor so that I can eat it. And laid there on my kitchen floor for an hour and a half. Sounds about right. I think we've all had that moment-ish with ride food. I'm very different than Rob in that I typically won't bring a lot of food. I had to learn how to eat on the yep. bike. And it might be my history in swimming where you'd go two and a half, three-hour practices. We never ate. You can't eat in the pool, can no, you? No, I mean, and, and now I, I ask my swimmers to bring things. Like, it's, it makes such a difference, but we never ate in the pool. And we never even had Gatorade on the pool deck. I mean, this is a long time ago. It was maybe we had some water. So that's what I learned for better or for worse, right? And so I brought that to the bike and I got to a point where I go a three-hour race, almost no problem with no food. But if I started getting over two and a half, three hours with no yep. food, I just cracked. And then you can't catch up, right? So I had to learn how to start eating in the first hour of a race or eating in the first hour of training rides. And honest to God, man, it's learning. I had to actively force myself to eat. I'm not hungry. So really a different experience than yours. And my wife, who's a registered dietitian, talks about this all the time. You have to train yourself yep. to eat the proper amount of food, whether that's off the bike or on the bike. But, you know, we'll all go have these wheelhouses that are our natural place. But how do we train that? I don't know that you can train the other direction. I really don't. What I think is interesting here is you look at my body type, right? I, I have fairly big legs, fairly big calves. I don't lift or anything else. Mm -hmm. I, I have a body type that you would expect for someone like me. Trevor, kind of a body type. You're more of a lean climber sort of guy. I, I'm very envious of who you are. But Grant, you're, you're different, right? Because you're a very strong individual. Like you have solid muscle mass. Your legs are just as big, if not bigger than mine. So it's interesting that your energy system is that much sort of different. And is that just training or is that something else? Well, I, I mean, I think the legs, I grew up swimming breaststroke and you just constantly use your legs and you do that. But I really had to work and continue to have to work as a 49 year old cyclocross racer. If I don't put ton of top end work in during the course of a year, I don't have the top end. Yes. I revert back down to my baseline, which is go forever, go forever, go forever. And I found that out the hard way, right? I've had to figure that out and go, Oh wow, I don't have a sprint anymore. But yeah, people look at me and go, Oh, you're a sprinter. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not really a sprinter. I'm a great lead out guy. Good draft. I can ramp it up for a minute, minute and a half, two minutes, three minutes, something like that. But my explosive power is not very good. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this is kind of an important point because you brought up, I'm kind of that lean climber. At least that's what I look like. But that's not my natural form. So when I moved to the, the National Center in Canada, I was 180 pounds. And I wasn't fat. It was all muscle. I'm actually, it, it's fairly easy for me, like you, Grant, to, mm -hmm. to put on a lot of muscle mass. So I actually have to kind of work to keep that off. So when I arrived there, Hu Shang, who was big on the track, took one look at me. He's like, I can't wait to get you on the track. 
And even though I had all this muscle mass, I still couldn't sprint. And I remember the first time I went on the track, he had me do some drills. And then I was like, so what do you think? And he just kind of shakes his head and goes, no, no, you're no good on track. <laughs> so interestingly, I'm the most normal of the three of us and you two are the enigmas. Yeah. And I think bringing this back to the food thing, for me, that makes a little bit of sense that I can rely on more of that aerobic, go for a long time, oxidize, mm -hmm. get my own calories, for lack of a better way to put it. You have never had that. And so you always need to take in the extra yep. calories. Yep. And then Trevor, what's your food thing on a bike? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of anecdotal and, and then we can bring some science into this. But, you know, I had a, a transition. So I was very much like you, heavily reliant on carbohydrates. When I was training up in, at the center in Canada, I was very big on a high carbohydrate diet. And, and to be blunt, I ate a lot of candy. So I was probably 65% of my diet was carbohydrates. Was I, candy? What was your candy of choice, just real quick? Up in Canada, we had Swedish fish, but kind of the Canadian equivalent was these big feet, which mm. tastes like Swedish fish, basically the same sort of candy, but they're, they're big up in Canada. That Boy, tracks. I could not eat <laughs> enough of those. Nice. All right. So back on track, you ate 65% so of your diet so I was, was I, I tried to be about 65% of my diet from carbohydrates. Like I'd have days where I was eating 700 grams of carbohydrates. It was crazy. And I was the same. I could not ride for more than an hour without having to eat. I had to eat all the time. I switched to a paleo diet in 2010. And now I, I just want to dispel one thing here. Paleo diet, despite what people think, is not a very low carbohydrate diet. It is a lower carbohydrate diet, but there's actually a big range. So right now, I'm probably 30, 35% carbohydrates. Don't eat as much as I used to. Eat more protein, eat more fat. And the one thing I have noticed from that is I can go a long time now without eating. Like I can, if I wanted to, I could go out and do a five hour ride without eating at all. And I would be, you know, I wouldn't want to be racing at the end of it, but otherwise I'd, I'd have no problems. But as Grant brought up, I think there is a transition. I think my body has become more reliant on fat. And Ryan and I did play with this a little bit where he did some glycogen testing on me. And even after I went out and did some intervals, and didn't eat that much. He then measured my glycogen, muscle glycogen, and surprisingly, it, it, I hadn't lost that much. Hmm. So I've trained my body to be very reliant on fat. But as Grant was pointing out, I think I have lost, and I never had this to start, but I've lost even a little more of that top end. Yeah, sure. I'm the guy who can sit on the front of the field and just pound a, a big wattage for a long time. Yep. But if somebody attacks, my one-minute jump is kind of embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Can I ask this question, right? Because, you know, I've definitely tried to go lower carbohydrate, and I've definitely trained in a manner to take advantage of that, right? Because you can get some mitochondrial biogenesis mm -hmm. by activating different pathways in a low-carb state. Do you feel like when you switched over to a lower-carbohydrate, paleo in your case, was there a period of time where you just didn't feel good, where riding wasn't very strong for you or whatever else, because this is always kind of what gets in my way, right? Is that, yo, maybe I do low carb and I feel okay for a week or so. And then my glycogen stores get depleted and I go another week or two. And then I, I hate life. I hate riding. I hate everything else because I just feel like garbage. Did you go through that? Did you keep pushing through it? Or did your body switch over and you didn't really have any issues? Well, that's very common. I did not experience that because I made the transition very slowly and I did it in the off season. So I wasn't trying to train through it. And by the time I was back to full training, my body was a little more used to it. So I really didn't notice any negative side effects. I was actually quite surprised that winter when I got back to training of wow, I can go out and ride for hours and not eat and it just doesn't seem to be affecting me. This is quite surprising. But I would also wonder if you can keep yourself together. Can you not sprint? Like that's part of the equation too, right? We know that we can fuel lower carb, but when we put the higher efforts in, you need those carbs. Yep. And so I can tell this by looking at you, how long are you able to go without sprinting? How long are you able to go really truly in that zone one, zone two place? And that's really hard for people. And I don't think they realize how difficult that is. And if you start getting out of that at all, yeah, you're going to feel pretty awful. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Part of me, you know, here's the thing. I'm an experimenter, you know, and, and I love to try things. If you look, it's funny on my LinkedIn profile, it, it says the only thing better than finding the perfect solution is trying something else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
and I'm in the point where it would almost just be interesting to me, even if I get worse, I want to know what yeah. it takes to get worse, to tell you the truth, right? It would be interesting because, you know, to put this into perspective, yesterday when we were doing this workout, literally the first time I've really truly done sprints in a long, long time. And I really haven't weight lifted very seriously since last summer. And I was easily averaging 1450-ish, close to 1500 watts for three seconds. I don't know what the peak was. I can go back and look. It was probably even higher than that. That's just a normal sort of thing for me. So I wonder if I'll always retain that ability. I don't think I'll ever come down to having a peak sprint of 900 watts. I just don't know if I can do that. That's what I was going to bring up is, you know, back when I was a pretty muscly guy eating a ton of carbohydrates, I sucked on the track. I had no sprint. I have never had a sprint. I think when you're talking about that, that really top end, that's where you really get into, do you have the genetics or not? Like you said, you haven't been doing any sprint work. You haven't been doing any strength training. I have been in the weight room all winter and spring, <laughs> absolutely hitting that side as hard as I can. And you're putting out 1400 Watts for three seconds yesterday. I couldn't break a thousand Watts. Yeah. But what's interesting about this, right, is I have no interest in racing on the track at all. Maybe it's because I ran so much track, you know, as my primary sport yep. that I have gravitated to doing these long, stupid mountain bike things, which are totally the opposite of what my physiology would demand. And this is why, you know, when I do consult with people, I say, hey, what do you want to accomplish? And we'll try to get you there. It's not always about being... I don't want to say successful, right? Because if I wanted to be successful and stand on podiums, I'd be a track racer and I could probably do that. Yeah. I will never stand on a mountain bike podium ever just because I don't have those abilities, but that's what I love to do. And that's what I choose to do. I think that's an important piece is do what you love and yep. then train for that. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we're listening to you and we have reduced our price by 75%. Now you can get all our guides to training science, intervals, sports nutrition, pathways, and data analysis from our world-class experts for just $5 a month. That's a whole lot of training science and now 75% cheaper. Knowledge is power, Trevor. And power is speed. Join Fast Talk Labs now. There's never been a better time. Join at fasttalklabs.com slash join. So... We need to start transitioning to our next one, but I'm going to finish up here with where I have landed with my athletes, which is I do think some athletes are a little more carbohydrate dependent. Other athletes don't need it as much. I am very against the extremes. I am not a fan of the go to the keto approach. And I'm also not a fan of the super high carbohydrate because there's no way to be super high carbohydrate without eating a lot of junk food. There's just no way. So I have gravitated more and more with my athletes to saying, figure out if you're a little more carbohydrate dependent or not, and you can just a little bit, but ultimately what you should be trying to do is just eating a healthy diet and you're going to be the type of rider you're going to be. Yep. Yeah. You really should pay attention to what drives you. I'll tell a really quick story right before we go. I need protein on race day, especially for cross. I've always noticed that, right? Mm. I used to be, I used to eat bacon and eggs before cross races. Interesting. Because that made me feel good. I couldn't never really put my finger on it, but eventually bacon and eggs didn't sit well with my stomach. So now it's a lot of peanut butter. So I'll eat a good bit of peanut butter in that morning to get a little fat, a little protein. That's what I run on. Everybody's individual. We need to find those pieces for athletes and athletes need to find those pieces for themselves. Great. So let's go to our next topic, which is something I have been thinking about a little bit lately. And I surprisingly, even though I looked for it, don't have any research for this one which is killing me. Trevor with no research. Because I like my research. So I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory because this is a, it's personal experience that got me thinking about this one, but it's, it's a particular question about interval work. So I used to love, and I found this brought around my race form really well. I used to love to do two by two minute intervals. So it's two minutes at what would be considered around your VO2 max power then a two-minute recovery, and then a two-minute interval. I would repeat that six times for a set, and then I would do two or three sets. It's a really hard workout, but boy, when I wanted to turn my race fitness around, I could really do it with that workout. It was a great one. But when I moved to Colorado at altitude, I discovered I couldn't do them hard enough. So I actually switched to doing Tabatas. I started doing those 2010s, 
not quite a Tabata, but I also like 15-15s, which is 15 seconds all out, 15 seconds off, you keep repeating. 2010s are 20 seconds all out, 10 second rest, 20 seconds all out, and you repeat that for about five, six minutes, and then you puke. <laughs> so living in Colorado, I had to switch to those Tabatas because I found I could do those at altitude. But this year, I've gone back to doing my two-by-two-minute two intervals, and I'm actually discovering... My race fitness is better than it's been in years, even though I'm not training nearly as much as I used to, not nearly as well as I used to. So kind of going, well, there's something to these two-minute intervals. And I'm wondering what the difference is. And I have read study after study comparing interval work. But interestingly, I haven't really found any that compare those very specific Tabata protocols to what you see is more standard in the research. Like research loves to look at five-minute intervals, two-minute intervals, three-minute intervals, one-minute intervals, but you always see a long rest. You never see that shorter right, right, rest. Right. So I actually couldn't find a study comparing this style of interval to the Tabata. So I was really interested in discussing this. And do they hit the same energy system? Do we feel as one is better than the other? What are your thoughts? Well, I want to come back to the altitude piece, at least very briefly, right? When we move up to altitude, obviously, that's where all the research is. People going from sea level to altitude. We used to talk about this in swimming and, and running has it too. They have these benefits at altitude, right? So if you swim the mile at altitude, you get 23 seconds taken off your time for the database. But there isn't as much research on people born at altitude going down and what that does. And there's not as much research for somebody like you, Trevor, who's been here how long? Been here a long time. And I will tell you, so there's what's called altitude non-responders. Mm -hmm. yep. I am a non-responder. Okay. But over enough time, does your physiology change at least a little bit? Do you respond a little bit? And obviously we would expect that that would be the case. You have people that you can bring up to altitude for a week. They right. respond right away, right? And, and we see that in training too. You have training responders that respond right away. But over a long period of time, are you starting to get at least comfortable or used to the feeling of doing those two minuteers at altitude and therefore can do them a little bit more effectively? That's one thing that it would jump out at me. I love those two-minute intervals. One of my all-time favorites, minute on, minute off. Yep. Just three sets of five or just the old uh, Neil Henderson style of just, we're going to do 16 of these. Just in a row, minute on, minute off. I love that feeling. That's my go-to for race prep as well. But I hear you, man. Like two minutes when you're at altitude, it's super, super hard. And to me, that's the biggest piece of your story is the altitude piece. Yeah, for me, I think there's a few things to unpack here. First off, it's just the question of is doing something different beneficial? You know, yes. that you get used to doing one type of workout and then you switch that up, you're going to see something that helps you break through a plateau, you know? So I think that there's a couple of these underlying sort of things as to why it seems like the two minutes are more effective now than they were before, or maybe easier than they were before. But, you know, Trevor, I think your original question was more on the Tabata versus the two minutes. And, and I do have a couple thoughts there. You know, the first is if we look at sort of the structure of these workouts, when you're doing the repeat 10 seconds really hard or what, 20 seconds maybe 20 with seconds, a 10 yep. second recovery, then oftentimes I think that you're dipping into your high energy phosphate system, right? To get mm -hmm. that initial sort of punch, it gets you up there. And we know that there is a delay in the oxygen kinetics, right? You're working really hard, you're recovering, you're working really hard. If you were to look at your oxygen utilization, it would kind of be slowly ramping up through there. Now you get deeper into that set. You've done a bunch of reps at this point. Then your oxygen consumption is probably up a bit higher at that point. So we know that there is a delay. I think that if we switch this and we look at the two minutes, you're getting that high energy phosphate kick in the beginning of the two minutes but we are getting more oxygen utilization yes. because you are in that two minute, you're going steady sort of thereafter. In that second minute, you are mostly relying on aerobic metabolism. It's definitely a lot higher. Yeah, for sure. So I think that there are some differences there. Now is two minutes enough? Two minutes isn't something that I necessarily do a lot of personally because of the thinking that, well, two minutes isn't really enough to truly get your oxygen kinetics all the way up. You're not really stressing that VO2 system all that much, you know, but I do see that as maybe increasing your anaerobic capacity, 
you know, if you're familiar with sort of the uh, critical power theory, you have your W prime, which sort of yep. describes which get the work in a minute. Yeah, which describes the work you can do above critical power. I can definitely see that helping there. You know, but at the same time, Tabatas are also something that I don't necessarily do. You know, as a sprinter, I can crush the first few Tabatas, but then with that short recovery, I usually like boom, I'm like tapering off, tapering off, tapering off. So I almost have to hold back in the beginning of my Tabatas. And that seems like it kind of defeats the whole purpose of that workout if I'm going to make it all the way through a set. I think that's a natural response too to that 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. Whenever I have somebody do Tabatas for the first time, or I do one that's for cross that's 10 on, 10 off, just because punch, relax, punch, relax. Going into them, they're all making this assumption that it's not going to be that hard, right? Like They are killer. 10 on, 10 off, whatever. That's not going to be a big deal. And they're like, oh, I'm three in and I'm breathing out of my eyeballs trying to figure out what's going on. There's a little bit of this mental protection response that you have to overcome to do Tabatas the right way. And I wonder how much of that continues to creep in and stay in when you're doing a set of Tabatas that on my mind, and this is very much personal because Rob's probably going to look at this almost the opposite direction. I almost think that minute on or two minutes on, I can go deeper because I'm sitting there going, I know I got a full minute off. I'm going to go super deep. I'm going to be cross-eyed for 30 seconds, but then I get to recover. So I like what you were bringing up, Rob, because this is, so I my first question I had is, are these working the same energy systems or are they different? And what I find interesting about both of these types of intervals is they're kind of this in-between interval. They're not purely aerobic. They both might start with heavy reliance on anaerobic, but because you're doing those two minutes, you're going to deplete that anaerobic store and, and be relying a lot on aerobic metabolism, as we said, in the second minute of, e- of each interval. And I do also think with only the two-minute rest, you're never fully repleting your anaerobic side. So by the time you get to that six interval, you're above threshold, but you are relying a lot on aerobic metabolism. But Tabata's because you only have a 10 second rest, you might be able to do, as you said, as a sprinter, you might be able to do the first couple 20 seconds anaerobically, but it's the same thing. By the time you're getting towards the end of that set, you're above threshold, but you're still mostly relying on aerobic metabolism. So they do have a lot of commonalities in my opinion. I love that you brought up the Watt Prime because this is where I went to. Because when I give this type of interval to my athlete, I talk to them about burying the needle, which is that Watt Prime needle. I want to see them go below zero. I want to see them absolutely depleting it in the workout. And where I landed on, I wonder if there's a motivational thing here. Because I noticed last year when I was doing the 2010s, I wasn't getting the Watt Prime down all that mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. I used to be able to absolutely destroy Watt Prime in my 2010s. So I wonder when I'm going out and doing them, if I just wasn't motivated and really giving them that effort. Where with the two minutes, and, and again, another important thing about the, the 2010s, you don't look at your power meter when you do those. No, you're just trying to go all out. When you're doing two minutes, you can actually look. Right. And I know my target wattage, and I notice when I've been doing these two minutes, I am staring at that, trying to stay above a particular wattage, and it really hurts. Yeah. And to me, this might be as simple as it's just a motivational side, but when I look at my watt prime, I am absolutely burying the needle now when I'm doing the, the two minutes on, two minutes off. So I'm wondering if it's less an energy system thing and more just right now I'm a little more motivated to do this workout. Well, and I think one of the other things that my mind jumps to is I have two things that my mind jumps to. One, at the beginning of this, what's the average power at the end of each set of these things? 2010s, your average power is going to be slightly higher, I think, Yeah. ultimately at the end. So it's more of what's your average power at the end of eight minutes. It's probably right around threshold. It's a different way to get to an eight-minute threshold set. Boom, 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 boom. Really good at mimicking racing. That's what I've used it for. That's why I use 40-20 for a lot. Two minute on, two minute off, your average power is going to be lower. You know, you might be 400 watts for the two on, but you're going to be like, if you're doing it right, you're going to be 100 watts for the two off. So you're going to land 250 watts, 240 watts for your average. That's a different eight-minute block at Mm -hmm. the end of it, right? You're going deeper, recovering more. So that's one thing to throw out there. The other thing I want to throw out there is what are you more primed to do right now? If you've lost some of your sprinting ability over the last couple of years, are you more to that two-minute diesel and leave it there at 400 watts? This is awful, but I can hold it there. Or that Rob Pickles spiky style of, I'm going way up here. 
try to recover way up, try to recover. It, so, I mean, yeah. And of course, you know me, I'm huge on the motivation thing. Yeah. All right. Right. I think if we could figure out a way to bring mental motivation into the F of FTP, into the functional piece of FTP, we'd really be on to something. But this is just a super interesting topic to me. I, I, I love Tabatas. I love minute on, minute offs. After this discussion, I'm going to be trying two minute on, two minute offs to see where that goes. I can't tell you how many coaches I know that love the four minute VO2. I'm air quoting the VO2 because I think that's questionable. How long you can, re- are you really yep. at VO2 for four minutes? You might be super oh, yeah, no, LT, yeah. but are you really VO2? And that doesn't exist at altitude. No, you're not doing that thing at altitude. So, I mean, these two minute intervals. So I know what my, if I did a VO2 max test, I know what power I'd be finishing at. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been targeting for these two minutes. And it takes everything I've got to do two minutes at that wattage. Right. I could not do four minutes at that wattage. And not four of them. Right. And we've been talking about this, but I just want to ask this question directly because this is where I landed with these intervals. And I'm using myself as an example, but just to help give clarity, and I I think this is something important that everybody listening should think about when they're doing their work. When I was comparing these two types of intervals, I immediately, as a scientist, went to, well, what are the energy systems? And is one just hitting a better energy system than the other? But I've moved away from that, and it goes back to, I used to be able to do 2010s, the, the Tabata workout, where by the end of that set, I was gasping for air. I was dead. When I was doing them last year, I'd go, that hurt, but I was never gasping in the same way. I was not digging as deep. Doing the two-by-two-minute intervals, I'm getting to that place of, man, that took everything I had. So I'm wondering if it's less about energy systems and the science and if this is truly a, a motivational thing. So I've always said there's a lot of ways to get to the same place. There's no magic interval And maybe it's just purely that motivational. And I've just landed now back on a workout that I enjoy, that I can really dig deep in, that I can't do at Tabatas anymore. And that's what's making the difference, not the energy system it's hitting. And how do you guys respond to that? For me, everything is always a combination. There's no clear answer. I'm not a black or white person, you know, and I definitely think that there's both. There's a motivational component to this. There's a just doing something different component to this. You know, I do think that we're hitting energy systems differently. Like I said, I think that the Tabata is going to be stressing that high energy phosphate and and the recovery thereof, maybe a little bit more importantly, you know, in the two minute on, two minute off, you know, and uh, you're looking maybe a little bit more at lactate clearance. You're actually getting a little bit of that for two minutes as you're uh, pedaling at low watts. So I do think that the energy systems are different as well. Now, exactly why one is, uh, you know, hitting you a little bit better or harder right now is such a complicated answer. I, I don't have that answer. I am a big fan as a coach of variety. I really, really mm-hmm. like variety. And I will sit there in a training plan and look at two workouts that I'm trying to decide between. One might be a slightly better workout physiologically for the athlete, and I'll use the other one if I haven't used that workout for a while with them. This is personal preference on my part, and maybe I have athletes that don't appreciate it, but I like to keep things varietal. I don't like to repeat a workout inside of a month unless we've really talked about it and targeted it. So I think there's a big element of that change, right? If I'm going to come back and try this different, oh, wow, it's working for me. Ride the horse is kind of my mentality. This is working for you right now. Go with it and use that right now because it's Tuesday. It might work for you Tuesday. Mentally, it might not work for you on Wednesday. Yeah. The other thing too, is I feel like two workouts like this, they're pretty similar, right? It's like saying, uh, I want Italian tonight for dinner. You know, the genre that you're in, whether it's the detail of chicken Parmesan or pesto, I don't know that that really matters, but what we know is that it ain't French, you know, you're not eating Thai, you know, those are totally different energy systems with you. Dude, I'm hungry all the time. (laughs) I make it through the last third of every ride by thinking about what I'm going to eat when I get home. And it makes me so excited. Well, that, that's good to know, man. So, so, next so time, now we know where Rob's motivation yeah, is at. Next time we do a cross race, I'm just going to be yelling out, we're going to sandwiches, we're going to a deli after exactly. this, Rob. Oh, God, Grant, that'll get me into at least the second lap because I'm good for the first lap. It's all the subsequent laps thereafter that I tend to struggle with, unless it's muddy and then I'm solid all the way Perfect. through. Perfect. I'm motivated by a new workout routine. Rob is motivated by a turkey leg. <laughs> Perfect. 
All right. So we got one more to discuss here. Let's go to Grant's topic. Grant? So one of the things that I've been noticing lately and really stood out in cross season, but I've noticed it in some of my athletes this year too, is we're watching these athletes come off of breaks or injuries and have the first race back be this phenomenal race. You know, the great example of this is Maddie Heyman a few years back at Roubaix, right? Breaks his arm. He's riding in the trainer in the garage for months, comes back, Roubaix is his first race and he wins it. And not just wins it, but off the front all day wins it. So this is such a change over the last 15 to 20 years in cycling where the conventional wisdom was how many race days we need X number of race days in the legs before we can even be competitive. And I even noticed this year, the announcers like crazy and Walt Van Aert wins the first race of the year. And everybody's like, this is the first time he's raced all year. Now let's, we can talk about cross and he'd been racing cross, but still first road race of the year. And he wins Vanderpool comes back after the back injury, first race of the year. And he wins Jenny Rizvets last weekend at the world cup mountain bike first race of the year, and she's second. So what's changing? You know, why is this something that's able to happen now versus 20 years ago when this was unheard of? I mean, it almost never happened. People didn't go win on their first race day. So my question to you guys is, what is changing? Because if it was just Vanderpool or it was just Van Art, we could just go, oh, those guys are freaks. They're different. Or it's the cross impact of it. But Vanderpool had no cross this winter. And it's not just those guys. So what's, what's changing? What do you guys see? So I have a theory on this, and I'm going to be very interested in your reaction to it. It has two answers. And there is research on this. If you go back 20 years ago, the season was shorter, and you had a very traditional periodization approach, which was long base season, then a big transition where you do a ton of racing to get into form, and then you're on form for a while. You hold it as long as you can until basically then you crack and season's pretty much over. You might be able to come back once, but that's about it. Right. So it was a very, very long build and then hold. You can't do that anymore because the seasons have gotten so long. And what you are seeing athletes switching to is a more block periodization approach, which is you do these shorter blocks and there's three phases to it. You have a couple weeks where you literally go back to basically base training Then you have a short build of a few weeks. And then you have this realization phase where you are on race form, but it's only like two weeks, maybe three weeks. And then you repeat the cycle where you go right back to base. And you see athletes now doing six, seven, eight of these blocks in a season where go back to base, quick build, be on form for a couple of weeks, back to base. And you just keep repeating that cycle. So I, to me, some of this is athletes have gotten very used to that of building quickly and getting onto form quickly that one of the side effects is if you get injured, your body's used to that. So when you come off the injury, you can do that quick build and and be on that form quickly. The other side of this that I wonder is because that's now more the approach that you see athletes taking, if that's now favoring the type of athlete who can get onto form really quickly. I'm actually one of those athletes. I need seven, eight races to find my race legs. And I wonder if athletes like me couldn't survive as well in this current environment. And now you're seeing those those guys who can come onto form quick, but can only hold it for a short period of time and then come off and then come onto form quickly again. If now it's actually selecting for that type of athlete. Yeah. I think that for me, is this a, it's a chicken or egg situation, right? Where I think the nature of racing is changing. We are not seeing athletes compete a season like we did in the past. Well, and even within the individual races, it's changing. Mm -hmm. You watch road racing now, it is way more dynamic than it was before COVID even. Everything. I mean, in, in a lot of regard, cross racing is too, right? Cross racing used to be three quarters of the race was a parade yeah. and then yep. everybody attacked each other in the last lap right. or two. That's why, that's why Sven could have the slowest start of anybody on the planet. You play the Jaws music yep. and all of a sudden he's there. Exactly. Now yep. these guys go out of the gate. Hard. I mean, it's strung out from the beginning, right? Yeah, it's unreal. Yeah. For me, one of the big pieces that I keep coming back to is this rest piece or the forced rest piece of an injury. I've had a couple athletes this year that took way more breaks than what would be our norm or our comfort. We had to, we didn't have a choice. There was, 
injury, sickness, one athlete with the fires in Boulder and other athlete for mental health issues. Just, I need a break. But they came out of those breaks and they were on fire and they're better than they've ever been. So when I listen to Trevor talk about the block periodization, what keeps coming into my mind is you're ripping, you rip through this race block, and then you go rest for four or five days or even a week. Yep. And then you start the base and you start the wind back up, hit it. You're amazing for a little while and then you get the rest. So as the sports psychologist in the group, I just keep coming back to this idea of the reset button, right? You get to hit the reset button. And as you just noted, you get to decompress for a little period of time. You don't have to worry about racing. You don't have to worry about the obligations. Go back. You hang out with your significant other. You just veg for a couple of days. To me, that is a huge piece of the puzzle that just wasn't there before. Because as you said, Trevor, the season was March and then it was over in September. Yep. Now it's year round for road. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got Thailand in December, which is, you know, a decent sized race. I mean, it's, it's on the calendar, but you're starting real racing tour down under in January and you're, you have to be worlds is October or September, whatever it is. That's a, and, and you've got to race that whole year. So how do you maintain anything of sharpness? Yeah, I think that we're seeing a switch, right? Almost because it's gotten so long, people need to specialize more. Not everybody is doing every single grand tour. They're not finding success like that, like they were before. We're almost switching from a, a durable diesel sort of athlete to more of a high performance sports car athlete, a little bit more fragile, a little bit faster when, when they're able to be on form. You know, and, and I don't want to get too far off topic. I think that that's been very interesting for racing. It's not just the same guys in every Grand Tour. It's who's showing up for this one, who's on form, who's, who's able to, you know, but I think in the Pro Peloton, what we're seeing right now, and this is across the world, right? COVID changed everything about life. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, anecdotally more sickness now in the Pro Peloton than there has oh, been yeah. in a very long time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's not people getting COVID. It's just people getting the flu. stuff in general, yeah. you know, that's setting them back. And so, you know, we are ending up in this position, you know, and, and Grant, I did mean to ask you a question before you were talking about some of the athletes you're working with. Did you change the training? Is it more of a, I don't want to say frenetic, but big lows, big offs, and then really hard in between because you're trying to catch back up as opposed to maybe a little bit more of a moderated sort of build. Um, it was different for each one of them because it depended on what was going on, right? For the people that needed a mental health break, I wasn't going to come, hey, nice, you got a week off, let's go and crank it back up because I'd crack them again. But at the same time, those guys and girls, I know they're fit, right? Like I have had a couple athletes that I was – concerned about what they lost, right? This has been a chunk. It wasn't like I gave them a week. We had a month where there wasn't any good training and yes, let's crank it up. And we skipped some of the pleasantries, so to speak, right? Like we skipped some of the base period. We're going to do some of it, but it was short and here we go. And it worked really, really well. And we walked out of it going, dude, that was kind of rad. And I had one athlete that we did that went, gotten it, crash now we have to do it again and they're going back to europe and we're like hope it works again yep but yeah i think this is really interesting just in general and i think rob you make a really interesting point of the athlete it's going to work for right and i just think it's so cool watching some of those early season races because people that have learned that they're quick responders they're going to come in hot yep because why not because if I can get a win in the Pro Tour, I don't care if it's in February. This is Ely Isabert in every uh, cross season, right? Right, right, Dude, right. he crushes the first third of the season. He's nowhere to be found thereafter. But he can win the World Cup that way because he won the first five rounds of the World Cup and he knows Wout and Vanderpool are coming back and he's probably going to get his you know, lunch money stolen. So I might as well do it now. I think this is a really interesting piece for our Masters athletes too, though right? Of how do we block a season? And I mean, on this show, everybody's heard me say, use your vacations, use this, use the natural flow of your life. This is a really neat way to start looking at those people and block periodization and go, Hey, look, it's working over there too. It's working at the pro level. Well, I think an important thing here is to know which type of rider you are. So you've been talking about specialization and I do think you see a little bit of those 
people that can come onto form quick and use that repeated block type approach are really those ones like the, the Von Arts that you're seeing specializing in that type of event. I still think the ones who are trying to win the Grand Tours oh, are absolutely. taking the old school approach of they've got to build slow. Yeah. It's important to know which type of rider you are and figure out how to block out your season. According to, I'm, I'm more that Grand Tour style rider of like when I go and race in March, I get my butt handed to me. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I need seven, eight races mm-hmm. just to find my form. So I plan out my season to say, I know I'm going to have a period where I'm on fire and, and doing really well. And I'm just going to suffer through those March races yeah. and, and plan accordingly. If you're the other type of rider, then you're right. Maybe yeah. you come in super hot in March, take a break in April, come in super hot in May, take a short break in June and super hot again in July. Yeah. And that's me. Like I can do that. I'll just show up for a random road race and I'll be pretty good. And I definitely have this mentality in my training, knowing that I have two kids and the busyness of life and all of that stuff. I'm going to make hay while the sun shines, right? I'm going to do this while I can. Because even if I can get super fit in May and everything goes down the toilet for a month or two, I had something and I have still have that something for a period of time. So yeah, and, and part of it is who you are. I happen to be a quick responder. You happen to be a little slower, but also what your life's like. Mm-hmm. If, if you know you're going to be unpredictable, do it while you can do it. If you know you've got this, I've got this three months, everything sorted. I can dial this in. Yeah, man, go for the traditional style because you're right. Like Grand Tours and maybe even a race like Unbound, you're probably not going to be able to wing your way into that thing. Right. Well, guys, I think we are hitting towards the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. This, like I said, this is a new type of episode, so we'll see how this plays out. But I certainly enjoyed the conversation hearing about Rob's food habits. Not even getting a dirty look for that one. No, no, I love my food habits. Uh, He's very proud of himself for the honey story. That's really why you went. You didn't want to give any practical information. You just wanted to tell about your honey. You just wanted to tell his Pooh Bear story and be proud and revel in it. (laughs) Well, Pooh Bear, you want to take us out? Yeah, that was our first potluck discussion. We'd love your feedback, so be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual, especially on this episode. (laughs) Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For the should need carbs but doesn't Grant Holicky and the trained himself to not need carbs Trevor Connor, I'm the all carbs all the time Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening. <laughs>